Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to the final part of the Trinity podcast series. We've been looking at the essence and nature of God by looking at the word Trinity. This is not a task for the faint of heart. While the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible and probably wasn't used until the third century after Christ, it is a term that can perhaps help us understand some of the nature and personality of God. Christians don't believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three gods, but that they are three persons in one God. That's important to remember. While they are distinct persons, they are one in essence. Now, St. Patrick in the early 400s AD, it's believed, used a clover to visually explain the Trinity to his pagan Irish students. The clover, you see, has three leaves on one stem, and he explained that just like the one clover has the three leaves, in one God, there are three divine beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To many, this was a visual example of a super abstract idea. Good job, St. Patrick. In the past, I have cited from blogs produced by Fusion Church New York, and I like what they say about the Trinity concept. I'll quote, The Trinity is one of those mysteries of God we'll never completely understand, but from what we can see in Scripture, it's plain that God has always existed in relationship with himself for all eternity. Each member of the Trinity serves different functions. They each possess equal power and authority, and each part has been around since the very beginning. The Trinity exists as one substance in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, end quote. In our first podcast on the Trinity series, we discussed that one of the challenges for us is that the English translated Bible is limited in what we call God. We call God, God. (laughs) And God can mean different things to different people. In our English language, we basically have two names for God in the Old Testament, God and Lord. But throughout the Bible, in the original Hebrew translation, we learned that God refers to himself by many different names and titles, and that each name reveals an aspect of his nature, his character, his power, in other words, his attributes. One of God's names is the great I Am. We acknowledge that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and not limited by space or time, and yet, He's also very personal and loving and wants to have a deep relationship 
with each of us. God is ever present, never changing, and completely worthy of our trust, our love, and our devotion. Again, quoting from Fusion Church, New York, he's a good father. He's loving, compassionate, and faithful to his people and his promises, end quote. Initially, we were created to be in daily communion with God, walking with him in the garden he created for us, working with him side by side to cultivate this beautiful world he created for us. We were supposed to learn about life from the ultimate teacher, the creator of life. Our relationship with God was designed to be personal and intimate and honestly ever unfolding with literally an eternity of discovery about ourselves, about him, about his creation. But we messed up. We made a very conscious decision to decide for ourselves good and bad. We literally turned our back on God. Because the Bible tells us that God is love, God gave us a choice. We call this free will. He doesn't force us to choose him. Well, if he did force us, that would be slavery, not love. And because God is love and goodness and absolute holiness, he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. We are now, because of our rebellion against God and our decision to decide for ourselves what is good and bad, we're slaves to sin. It's in our nature. The penalty for sin is death. Death in the Bible literally means separation. We, through our sin, have become corrupted and therefore separated from God. But again, because God is absolute love, he sent his son, Jesus, whom we discovered is the second person in the Trinity. Jesus was sent to earth to represent God himself in essence and truth as someone completely human and yet completely God. And he would humble himself to die on a cross for all of us, believers and unbelievers, every human being on the planet, so that if we would acknowledge our sinful nature and seek his forgiveness, our sins would once and for all be forgiven so that once again we could enjoy being in God's presence for eternity. While it seems so incredible and maybe even foolish because the cross truly is seen as a failure to the secular world, this death and resurrection of his son was the fulfillment of the ancient prophets that a savior for the world would come. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, made a prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
We learned in our second podcast that this Jesus was, in fact, God incarnate, which is just another term for being made in human form. We learned that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus is God in human form, whose plan is to bring people who don't know God and bring them back to him. Jesus died an awful death on a Roman torture device so that we, all of us, could live. Jesus defeated death. He rose from the dead, again proving he was in fact God. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to many, many people. And then the Bible tells us 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. Now, if that was the end of the story, it would still be a good story, a great story even, but it would also leave us feeling empty since it happened 2,000 years ago. But now we come to the third part of the Trinity and literally the rest of the story, the amazing and powerful sense of hope and peace part of the story. This story is ongoing, and we're a part of it. Yeah, all of us, believers and non-believers, are a continuation of the biblical narrative. Did you know that? Even though the book we call the Bible has a beginning, middle, and end, the story of God's plan for restoration of all creation is still in the process of being fulfilled, and we all have a role to play. Now, the Bible says that everyone has innate sense of God. Paul in his letter to the Romans says that God has revealed his existence to humans in their consciences by impressing his law on their hearts even before they hear the gospel message. He says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without ever having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. That's in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And then in the Old Testament, we have an Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that explains that within the heart of every person. God has planted a longing to know him. He says, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end, end quote. The apostle Paul spoke of this sort of internal revelation again when he was talking to the pagan crowds in Athens, Greece. He was trying to explain to them that even though they may not know God by name, everyone is invited to search for him. He says his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God's purpose for placing this yearning in the human heart is so that we might have a living, personal relationship with him. But you might be wondering, how can we do this since Jesus ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago? 
what is the rest of the story? So in this podcast, we're going to focus on the third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. And we'll start to see how this Holy Spirit is here with us right now, 2,000 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. I think this is the most abstract and hardest part of God to understand. So please know that you haven't failed in your faith if you struggle with this. Now, it might sound funny to say this, almost like using the very words you're trying to understand in its own definition, but (laughs) I want you to pray to the Holy Spirit to help you to understand the Holy Spirit. The idea of the concept of God, it's mystified people for thousands of years. God is difficult to explain from our perspective. So, Here's kind of a fun example that the authors of the Bible Project ask us to consider. Now, think of life as a two-dimensional object. 2D means something that only has length and width. So when you draw on a piece of paper, for example, what you draw is two-dimensional. A 3D object, conversely, is something you can measure its length, its width, and its height. Think of anything that you can like hold in your hand. We live in a 3D world. Everything around us has length and width and height. But what if you were a 2D person stuck on a 2D plane? It would honestly be impossible for you to make sense of a 3D object. Looking at it from above, it would look like it was one, two, three objects But in reality, it's just one object. It's just that you're not capable of seeing it correctly. Well, in some way, that explains our limited ability to understand the complex nature of God. And therefore, the need to use words like Trinity to explain him. Maybe another way to think of Trinity is to break down the word into tri-unity. Three, united. When God appears here on earth, the Hebrew Old Testament authors had the same kind of problem explaining God. So that's why God appears often through, we've talked about this before, his attributes. An attribute is what something is like. For example, let me describe a ball. We say a ball is round, and we can all somewhat agree on what round means. So the book of Proverbs, for example, says that God created the world by his wisdom. Well, wisdom is an attribute of God. And then there's places in Proverbs that describes God's wisdom as a person. God's word is another example. Now, God can speak it to people, but it also sometimes appears like a person. The biblical authors believed in one God, but they were comfortable talking about his attributes as different characters. This is one of the ways the Old Testament authors described God's complex identity. They would talk about God's attributes as being a part of God and also distinct from God. Well, this is in the very opening lines of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Hebrew word used here for God's Spirit is the word ruach, and it's Hebrew, and it's spelled a couple of different ways, but predominantly R-U-A-K-H, ruach. And they use this word for God's personal presence. We see God's spirit as being actively involved in the creation of the world. According to the Bible Project offers, ruach can refer to many different things, but all of the things point back to a kind of energy. Wind and breath are often used to describe God's ruach. Wind and breath are invisible. God's spirit is invisible. Breath keeps us alive, and God's spirit keeps us alive. Are you with me? Here, the spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that interacts with creation, distinct from God, but also God. Ruach, God's spirit, is described as wind, A number of examples in the Bible, like Numbers chapter 11, verse 31, and Exodus chapter 10, verse 13. It's called spirit in Judges chapter 6, verse 34, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 12, and then in Job chapter 12, verse 10, his spirit is referred to as breath. So what does the Holy Spirit, or Ruach, do, according to the Bible? Well, we're going to look at a few things that the Spirit does. The Bible says that, for example, the Spirit empowers the prophets to see what God sees. In other words, to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. The prophets were able to see that God's Ruach had created a perfect world, but that mankind brought evil and injustice into the world. They were able to see through God's spirit, Ruach, that the spirit would come to transform the human heart. Now, we, you and I, cannot witness effectively, which basically means to share our faith, by relying on our own devices or leaning on our own understanding. This is one of the roles, according to the Bible, of the spirit, the ruach. The Old Testament prophet Micah, for example, acknowledged this. And he said, it's the Holy Spirit, the ruach of God, that gave Micah the power to speak truth about the sins of Jacob. This was in Micah chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but as for me... I am filled with the power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Another example is the prophet Samuel. Now, when he was anointing David, that means pouring oil over him so that he would become king over Israel, he said that it was the Holy Spirit that came and filled David. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. 
And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Centuries later, we're introduced to Jesus. And at his baptism, we're told that the skies opened up and that God's Spirit, Ruach, comes and rests on Jesus in the form of a dove. The Gospel of John talks about this. John in chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, it says about this event, and this is through the testimony of John the Baptist, quote, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify this is the Son of God. Basically, what's happening here is that God's Spirit is empowering Jesus to start the new creation, which is going to be evidenced by Jesus healing people and forgiving their sins. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is creating life where there once was death. Now, when Jesus was crucified, again, remember, because many of the religious leaders did not believe he was, in fact, God, the disciples testified that he was, in fact, God's energizing spirit, Ruach, that raised Jesus. Jesus then breathed on his disciples so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. And then remember on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit appeared to all of them. And this is still happening today. This is the ongoing story. I like how the author Josh McDowell describes this. He says, the Holy Spirit is still hovering over dark places and pointing people to Jesus. Our great hope is that the Spirit will finish the job and create a new humanity living in the new heaven and the new earth, and we will be filled with his life-giving Spirit. Many think Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same thing. The Bible says Jesus is not the same as the Holy Spirit. Jesus actually talks about this in John's Gospel, John 14, verse 16. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. He then continues, the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you do know him, for he abides with you and will be in you. Now, did you notice that Jesus says he will pray to the Father, and the Father will send them another counselor, who's the Holy Spirit? And I think this shows the distinction then of all three persons, right? Jesus who prays, the Father who sends, and the Spirit who comes. I like the way the Bible Project authors describe God's Ruach, or his Spirit. They say, God's Spirit is his invisible, personal presence. That is, God himself 
as he is experienced by people and is personally present in the world. God's Spirit influences and works through human agents. And we see lots of examples of this in the Bible. The power of the Holy Spirit is given to various people in the Bible. Now, I just mentioned a few examples of the Holy Spirit making the prophets bold in speaking the truth. Another example in the Old Testament where we see God's ruach is where he helps a guy named Joseph. Now, this is the Old Testament Joseph. This is the Joseph who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he ends up in captivity in Egypt. What a crazy story. This Joseph, the Old Testament, eventually ends up being a very powerful person of influence in Egypt. But long before that happens, the Bible tells us that God's spirit enables Joseph to understand and interpret dreams. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 37, it tells us that after Joseph was taken out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's troubling dreams, this is what Pharaoh says of Joseph. Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, in the New Testament, Jesus explains to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit will help them to remember things. Oh boy, I think I need this. I definitely need help remembering things. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will help them to understand the things that he has told them. How cool is that? This is in John chapter 14, verse 25 through 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father... I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The Bible identifies the Holy Spirit as God. Here's an example. Peter refers to the Holy Spirit as God in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This is an interesting little story where they catch a man and his wife in a lie. Then Peter said, Ananias how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as having attributes that only belong to God. Here's just a few examples. Listen to what the Holy Spirit does. This is in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 13. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So we see here in this psalm that the author knows that the Spirit is someone we can't hide from. The author then says that the Spirit is the one who created him and who knew him even before he was born. That sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? Now, one of the most recalled verses about the power of the Holy Spirit is found in the New Testament, and this was in Luke Chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit that allowed the Virgin Mary to become pregnant with Jesus. That sounds like something only God could do since God is the author of all life. In Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 19, Paul explains how he's been able to spread the gospel and how pagan Gentiles have come to know Christ. Listen to the role of the Holy Spirit here. Paul says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet, I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of the signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul's explaining the role of the Holy Spirit in converting the pagan Gentiles. He said that they became sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This means that here the Holy Spirit kind of became a guiding internal force, convicting them of their sinful nature. The counselor, the tap on the shoulder, the conscience that turns them to God. That's the Holy Spirit. And Paul explains that how he was able to lead them to God was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains that the Holy Spirit reveals God's truth. This is in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, 
Even the deep things of God in the Bible shows us that the Holy Spirit does the work of God. I hope in this podcast, you've started to see that the Holy Spirit is a person and the Holy Spirit is God. The National Catholic Register explains that the work of the Holy Spirit is comforter, helper, and teacher suggests he must be a person. I'm going to try to summarize what we've learned. God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are eternal. The person of the Son, Jesus, well, he existed before his incarnation, which was what we call his earthly birth by the Virgin Mary. We read this in The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That's referring to Jesus, who is God. We then saw how the plural word God, Elohim, demonstrates to us that from the beginning, the Holy Spirit was also present. All three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were present from eternity. The Holy Spirit is God in spirit, who calls us to be in partnership with God for his mission, which is to spread the good news of Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and draws us closer by helping us acknowledge our desire to be loved and loving and to know the reason we love is because he first loved us. He's loved us from the beginning. But to quote the Bridge Church blog on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not our secular life coach. I like that. The Holy Spirit is not within us to help us achieve our earthly desires or to brag that we're spirit-filled and therefore better than everyone else. No, the Holy Spirit is in us to impress upon us the greater need for us to decrease so that he can increase in us. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit who helps us remember and understand scripture. He helps us to be bold in our faith story. He convicts us of our sin and our need for a savior. He makes us holy because he is holy and he helps us die to ourselves. Paul said that if we live by the Spirit, let's also walk by the Spirit. And then John said that we win by receiving the Spirit because the world has nothing to offer us. He says in John 6, verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And finally, we receive in the book of Acts, Instructions on how to receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the best way to summarize what we have learned over these last three podcasts is 
to recite what we call the Nicene Creed. Many believers recite this declaration of faith every week. It's certainly a good reminder of who God is, our Creator, our wonderful Counselor, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he'll come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who, with the Father and the Son together, is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. May you be filled today with the Holy Spirit, and may your light shine brightly among men. Have a blessed day.